Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. Now, as some of you may already know, I am really passionate about strength training and all that comes along with it. And as a hugely underserved part of that subject, I think our pelvic floor and our pelvic health is something that I've already talked about in the podcast and I'm really keen to do more of. We recently had Claire Bourne on who helped us dive into the subject. And today I'm joined by another wonderful voice within the pelvic health space, Helen Keeble. Helen is a chartered pelvic health physiotherapist, helping women with pelvic health problems, for example, leaking, prolapses, pain, tension, and diastasis to help get them back moving freely and confidently again. Now, Helen, you are someone who I actually have spent time shadowing when you were here in London a few years ago, which really gave me an insight into what a pelvic health physio actually does. So it's so nice to be able to have you on the podcast again. How are you today? Oh, it's so nice to see you. I am good. Thank you. I'm good. I'm so pleased to hear it because you've now moved to Ireland. So you are just a hop over the pond. Um, <laughs> but since I last saw you, you set up life there. You've had two babies. There's been a lot going on for you. Yeah. Somehow I've still managed to like squeeze and exercise here and there. Um, obviously nowhere near as much as I um, was doing pre-babies, but I remain committed to the cause nonetheless. Um, but yeah, life is for long, but it's great. Still doing your squeezes while you brush your teeth. Of course. Oh my God. <laughs> so today, I guess, um, you know, we have talked about pelvic health and we've done a bit of a kind of shallow dive into it. But I think one of the areas which I'd really like to talk about with you today, because of your connection to exercise, but also what I know you're really passionate about talking about, um, and that's the connection between pelvic health and, 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 and the exercise that we do and how the two can really impact each other. 
I think that one of the things I really learned from you, and even just from the content that you share on your Instagram, you know, I remember you putting a couple of things up about the role of box jumps, for example, on, you know, are they good or bad for our pelvic health and where do they sit in the kind of pelvic health journey? Um, so you're really passionate about kind of sharing the the inside bits of, of what exercise can do positively and negatively for our pelvic health. So I thought, first off, I just kind of want you to give a bit of a, a top level line on what we know about the role of exercise and pelvic health as much as that's a huge topic to throw at you oh my god where does that so it's funny actually because like if you look at any other muscle in the body like no other muscle is debated when it comes to the benefits of exercise but then you look at the pelvic floor and there is this long-standing debate of like is exercise good for the pelvic floor or is exercise bad for the pelvic floor it basically stems from the fact that pelvic health dysfunction so primarily the three most um, common during exercise would be urinary incontinence pelvic organ prolapse and anal incontinence and so 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 many different types of exercise can give that person that pelvic floor dysfunction as in that sounds wrong not give but kind of like um they may experience those dysfunctions during exercise um so then the debate comes about as to whether is the exercise causing that dysfunction or not? Or is it just showing it up? Um, so I think we're pretty much like now on the side of the debate that exercise is good. And you know better the most in terms of like all the benefits to exercise, you know, like we need for our mental health, our sleep quality, our, our bones, especially being female, like our bones and our muscle mass, like we need it for like just so many things. And so like when it comes to the pelvic floor, yes, it's Especially if we look at high intensity, high impact and resistance type training, they are the ones that do tend to give us more prevalence of pelvic floor dysfunction. But we are pretty much sitting firmly in the camp now that exercise is good, but also acknowledging that pelvic floor dysfunction can be a barrier to exercise. So that yeah. is like not to downplay, of course, that those things happen. It's not to say that people should put up with it, um, but it's just to say that we recognize it is a barrier. Um, and there's lots of research out recently in this area, which is so exciting. But even like a study done really recently, they showed that like they demonstrated just how much a barrier pelvic floor dysfunction can be to exercise. So people will either stop exercising altogether in worst case scenario, or else they'll they'll modify it. So they'll do less, or it'll be kind of in terms of less volume, less frequency, um, less intensity, or kind of moving away from weights. And especially being female, I just feel so passionately about really helping people to remove that pelvic health dysfunction to so that then that they then can do um, the exercise that they want to do. So what I'm getting for that is a li- it's a little bit chicken and egg. It's like what came first, <laughs> you know, the pelvic floor dysfunction or the exercise showing it up, and and that's really interesting because I think for a lot of people, you know, they might have had you know, we spoke in the episode with Claire about symptoms that might be showing a pelvic floor dysfunction, for example, painful sex, or um, a little bit of incontinence when you come to like really needing a wee, for example, you and you're not able to fully hold it in. Um, but the exercise might then exacerbate or, or just show up those symptoms in a more prevalent way. So it's really interesting to hear that. 
I think that one thing I want to dig into from what you said there was really that the specific types of exercise that you touched on and the ones that I would know to be kind of, I guess, more common in showing up symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. So you mentioned high impact exercise. So things like, you know, high intensity workouts, things where you're sort of jumping around and putting a lot of load through the body. Running, I'm guessing is one of them maybe as well. Definitely. Yeah. And then, and then resistance training, which is an interesting one, because I think when people think about resistance training, they don't necessarily think of it as maybe being of that category but I guess when we look at things like you know the amount of bearing down that might happen in heavy deadlifts or heavy lifts or even just having to brace uh, during you know even lighter lifts there is that level of, of putting a bit more pressure on the on the pelvic floor uh, in which case that again might might show up symptoms so can you give me a couple of examples of cases that you've seen where someone's pelvic obviously highly confidential but I mean just like more generalized examples where someone's pelvic floor has been sort of impacted by the exercise they're doing and why this might have become a problem so maybe within each of those scenarios like how it might show up um and and where the exercise kind of fits into that journey does that make sense yeah yeah I'd love to so for example let's take a weightlifter first so I was treating a powerlifter um, and she um, basically kept saying that she was having stress urinary incontinence when she was going for her one rep max. Um, so basic, basically bladder leaks just as she was getting kind of like high up to those um, higher numbers. And she was about to go for competition. So when I got her in the clinic and I assessed her, I could see that basically Interestingly, I assessed her pelvic floor lying down and then also in standing. It was her deadlift that she was most worried about or that she was most symptomatic on, I should say. So I then examined her pelvic floor in her deadlift position. Um, and the findings were actually quite different on the bed to off the bed. And off the bed, I could basically see that when she was doing anything that caused um, pressure, so for example, I used like a, a strong cough, because if you look at all the intra-abdominal pressure studies out there, um, basically like forceful coughing always creates like a lot of intra-abdominal pressure. So therefore we can use that a little bit to, to let us know what the pelvic floor muscles are doing. Because when everything is working well, the pelvic floor muscles should be working in the right way, but also at the right time. So the timing of pelvic floor activation is crucial for continence. So in it, like basically just before we lift or just before pressure is applied, the pelvic floor should switch on just before that happens and then maintain activation throughout. Um, so basically what I, could find, what I found with her is that when she was coughing in her deadlift position, the pelvic floor weren't automatically kicking in. And then I got her to also, she she was wearing a belt. Um, so I got her to basically then also repeat um, basically what she would do just before she goes to lift in terms of bracing and how she wears her belt and everything like that. And that again showed me that her pelvic floor was actually not switching on in time. And she was actually bearing down in the pelvic floor region when she was doing those things. Um, so I didn't actually get up to assessing her pelvic floor with weight because I, I basically could see enough without having to progress, progress onto the weights. Basically, all I got her to do was after the competition, because she was quite keen not to change anything pre-comp. Um, but afterwards, she was like, okay, I'm ready to change this now. Um, so I just basically got her to change the timing of her pelvic floor. So her strength and endurance was actually really good. It was just more so about a coordination piece with her. Um, so all I got her to do was when she was in the gym, so not necessarily on her heavy weights, but when she was doing kind of like lower weight and more reps, I would get her to slow them down and essentially just very consciously and like 
voluntarily activate the pelvic floor just before she goes to lift. Um, and then like the theory behind that being that if you're kind of practicing that sequence of events, um, so I was getting her to consciously squeeze the pelvic floor just before she lifted and maintain that activation while she lifts. Um, I think I also got her to breathe out initially um, because we know that breathing out also lowers intra-abdominal pressure. Um, so we were kind of mixing up a couple of things to try and just kind of, you know, aid the pelvic floor recruitment initially. And then as she got better in terms of the coordination got stronger, we then laid everything back on again. So like her normal bracing, her normal belt use um, and everything else. And she did she did really well. I actually only saw her in like, I think maybe three times, you know, because it was coordination. It was actually what, like unordinarily very quick. Like sometimes these pelvic floor problems can take a few months, I would say on average. Um, so I'd normally see people maybe once a month for maybe up to three to six months. Um, but with her, it was quite, it felt very quick. And then I also had a runner. So she, so like a recreational runner, she was used to running loads and loads. Um, but she wanted to basically do a half marathon. So she hadn't run that long before, but she had done like up to 10Ks, loads of them. And long story short, she was following a, what she called a proper running program this time um and so she, by that she meant that she was doing like her one long run a week um like some interval speed work and then a, a tempo run you know so she's kind of like do everything you know by the book and basically she was fine generally running but now that she was testing her speed once a week she noticed that she was having urinary leakage when she increased her speed her normal runs were totally fine. Her long runs were totally fine. Um, she didn't have any um, like risk factors or past medical history things or anything like that. Um, it was basically all down to speed. So I checked her pelvic floor. Um, everything was actually really, really quite good. Her timing, her endurance, her strength, her power. Um, it was more so that she she basically needed more strength and more endurance for what she was doing. Because when you look at some of the research that have looked at pelvic floor behavior during running, it's really interesting. Um, so they, so we now know that when we go to or when we are running, the pelvic floor muscles are active and they also move up and down. So with every heel strike, the pelvic floor moves up and down to kind of um, like absorb and recoil that impact of every single kind of um, heel strike. Um, and we also, they are very, very active. So this is an automatic reaction that our brain just kind of automatically gets the pelvic floor to work, or it should do at least. And we know that the faster we run, the more activation has been shown in the pelvic floor. Like the, one of the studies I'm thinking of um, by the Leitner Research Group, they were saying um, they had people running up treadmills on three different speeds and the top speed was 15 kilometers per hour. So they got people to run with a probe inserted vaginally so they could measure what the pelvic floor was doing. And basically they found at that speed, the pelvic floor was automatically activating up to 150% of what they could do voluntarily themselves. So, so yeah, it just means that like, and we also know that with running, and again, the faster we run, the the more ground reaction forces are put through the body. And the faster we're running, the more intra-abdominal pressure, the more ground reaction forces, um, the more demand on the pelvic floor. So, so with her, it was quite simple. You know, in the end, it was just really like a case of getting her stronger. And also, she was doing pelvic floor exercises as like a preventative measure and a bit more since she started the leaking. But she was doing them all sitting down. 
So a really key thing for her was to do them standing up. Um, and I think I also challenged her to do them like single leg stand as well. Um, Cause that's something I see in clinic so often is that people tend to like often be doing them. They're kind of, the awareness is growing, but then the position we do them in is really key and she really needs to do them upright. So we kind of moved her into that position as well. So interesting. Oh my God, there's so much I want to dig into there. I think that what I find really interesting is when I heard you reference the first example, I was like, yeah, I get it. I, I, can, I can see why that's happening. And actually, because it's in a kind of a, a form of, a, a, of a exercise where it's specific movements that you can almost do that pattern of breathe, brace or whatever it is, you know, pull your pelvic floor in, feel that contraction, apply the, the technique that you've given her, the outcome improves. What I'm interested in about running is that obviously it's a prolonged form of exercise. So most people are going to be running upwards of like maybe 20 minutes, let's say, um, some a lot longer than that. And so having to consciously or unconsciously try and do some form of pelvic um, work during that is going to be really almost impossible, right? <laughs> and obviously you've said the pelvic floor is contracting naturally anyway, almost as like a kind of subconscious mechanism. Um, but I think that running is one of those ones where I, you know, I, I even remember it with my own clients um, that it really does show up some um, issues for women. You know, I I even remember my, uh, I even remember myself. Um, I started doing some sprinting at the gym, and just not feeling any leakage, but feeling oh okay, this is oh, just having to like feel that little bit more tension down there. And so when you said about doing the the pelvic floor squeezes and stuff, I'm like, I'm there's guaranteed to be loads of runners that are listening to this who are thinking hmm maybe I should be doing something for my pelvic floor, or maybe I'm in a position where I actually, I need a little bit of help. So let's talk about runners specifically um, and park the weightlifting for a second and talk about what can really help runners when it comes to their pelvic floor and improving that so that they can have the best outcome when it comes to prolonged, um, you know, running and, and, and also running at speed. Yeah. So, and it's such a good question because there are so many other things other than the pelvic floor for the pelvic floor to be working well. Um, so like with that example, I I primarily was focusing initially on like prioritizing her pelvic floor muscle training. So those specific pelvic floor squeezes that she does every day. Um, but there is so much more to that. And actually, I would say probably even more important than the squeezes is the pelvic floor muscle flexibility. And that really comes from how we breathe. So we are obviously breathing all the time, um, but actually how we breathe has a huge impact on our pelvic health and also our pelvic floor and loads of other things as well. Um, but basically, because I do get asked every now and then, you know, should I be doing squeezes as I'm walking or as I'm running? Um, and I, I always say no, like there is, unless you can squeeze and release in between every time your foot leaves and hits the ground, <laughs> then that would just take you forever to get anywhere. Like it'd be so slow. Um, so I always say, no, don't ever worry about squeezing like when you're running. But what is really crucial to think about when you're running is your breathing. So if we breathe with our diaphragm, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor are a bit like a puppet on a string. So whatever the diaphragm's doing or not doing, it will then make the pelvic floor do the same. So if we're breathing with the diaphragm, it means the diaphragm's moving up and down really nicely. And so therefore it means the pelvic floor can also then do that. So that is like really, really crucial. And linked into that is also 
which is can be really tricky, but trying to not clench the abdominal wall or the pelvic floor. And this can feel tricky, especially if you have symptoms. Like I get people in clinic all the time and they're like, what, you want me to let go? And it's like, it's yeah, actually, we kind of need to not be squeezing the abs or the pelvic floor to allow the pelvic floor to actually do its job. Um, and interestingly, by squeezing the abs, for example, like that actually further increases intra-abdominal pressure. And by trying to kind of like clench and almost, you know, if you have prolapse or leaking type symptoms, I totally get it why you want to kind of clench and hold everything in because it feels like that's instinctively what you should do. But actually, practically, it's completely the opposite of what is needed. So basically letting the abs go, letting the pelvic floor go will just help the pelvic floor to be more available. And it also decreases excessive pressure onto the pelvic floor. And don't forget, the more pressure there is, the more likely we are to get symptoms. So we're running. And as you're running, think about breathing with your diaphragm. And the good news is, if you are breathing with your diaphragm, that means that you won't be clenching your abs because you can't do, you can't really do them both at the same time, not well anyway. So breathe with the diaphragm, don't clench the abs, don't clench the pelvic floor, do your pelvic floor squeezes on the side, as in like, you know, kind of day to day. Um, so we do have to do them daily to have an, um, like a significant improvement on strength for a few months. Um, but then the other things is also our running technique. Um, so things like when we're running, ideally we should have like a slight forward lean to running. So we should ideally kind of be looking for like a pushing type action when we're running. So by that, we mean we want to be kind of like kind of very glute heavy in terms of like, you know, pushing with the glutes um, rather than pulling with our hamstrings. So if we're losing that forward lean and we're kind of like a bit more upright, um, then it, it just also then increases ground reaction forces and also intra-abdominal pressure and therefore more demands on the pelvic floor, more likely to leak. Um, so that can often help as well. Um, and kind of linked into that is our tempo. So how fast or slow we're running. Um, so I know I've already kind of mentioned the effect that has on the pelvic floor, but also if we run too slow, then it can give us a more lean back type posture when we run um, and lead to like a more kind of heel out in front. And then that can also lead to more pressure, more forces and therefore more symptoms. Um, so it's really trying to get that balance right. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is just making sure that you're strong for running. So runners really need strength work um, and kind of like good strength in the hamstrings, for example, like also helps to decrease ground reaction forces. Um, we know that the foot and ankle are so crucial for running. Um, so having like a really good, strong foot core, and that's good for propulsion, that's good for shock absorption, which then will also help to lessen the demand on the pelvic floor. Um, like we don't want to take, obviously, like force and pressure away completely, like it's completely normal to have that. Um, but there are these little tweaks that we can make that just stop overloading the pelvic floor quite so much. Mm. I just want to take a little pause to just to do a little anatomy session because <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening and look, I'll, I'll be totally honest, obviously I, I know about where this stuff is, but for those who might not, I think it's good that we clarify it on a podcast, which is rather difficult because it's not <laughs> visual, but where this stuff is. So if someone were to now put their hands on their tummy, let's 
just go one where the diaphragm is and one where we can sort of feel our, our lower kind of pelvic floor region. Obviously, it kind of scoops underneath. So it's a little bit difficult to do. But just so people have an idea of what they're thinking about when it comes to um, increasing intra-abdominal pressure, which is also important to talk about, involves the whole of our core, which is not only the, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor, but also everything else included within our torso. Um, and then also what we're looking for when it comes to how breathing with our diaphragm actually feels does that make sense yeah so let's start at the top start with the diaphragm so it's it's really simple so don't worry about like forget anything you might have been told in terms of anything that makes it too complicated um so all i all i recommend when i'm in clinic anyway is to put your hands on the bottom of your rib cage or just above your waist so rest your hands there as if you're kind of like power posing, you know, like with your elbows out wide and your hands and that thing. Um, so just up from hands on your hips. Then basically, if you take a breath in so that you can feel expansion under where your hands are, you pretty much will be using the diaphragm. Take a deep breath in. And breathe out. So you should hopefully feel an expansion underneath your hands. And if you're not, it might mean you're breathing a bit, um, what we call kind of apically, so a bit more shallowly. Um, so just try to kind of send that breath down. That's the thing with diaphragmatic breathing. It feels like the breath is going down a bit more. And it's actually how we're anatomically all designed to breathe. But we just, for lots of reasons, often end up not breathing that way. Um, so it's really easy. And it is as simple as like, hands just above where you put your hands on your hips and then breathe in so you feel that area expanding. Um, so that's kind of, the dive well yeah that is where the diaphragm takes effect and is it worth practicing that sort of you know if, if you're if you're finding that you're not breathing that way and you're wanting to get into that rhythm that then transfers into your running is it worth you know before your run you know trying to do that diaphragmatic breathing couple of big inhales and exhales where you feel the hands expand is that is that going to be beneficial yeah definitely and even outside of running as well so like if if you're kind of like, if you're doing that now and thinking, oh, I can't really feel it happening, or it feels quite effortful to do, um, then it's probably worth practicing a bit. So if you like numbers, I would say try and practice like 10 to 20 breaths in that way, like once every hour or two, you know, like you can't really do it enough. It's kind of little and often is actually really beneficial. And then that will have good carrier for them when you go for a run because you're like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, obviously, when we are running or doing any type of exercise, we do use our other breathing muscles as well, what's called our accessory muscles. Um, so we do use other muscles as well because we need more of that kind of gas exchange to happen. Um, but we still primarily should be using the diaphragm for that kind of inspiration. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. So, something just came to my brain because I want to go on to talk about prolapse because I think it's really important as well. And I know that's something that you you cover a lot. Um, and it's a little bit more taboo than leakage and, and kind of incontinence during exercise. But just a final question here is, is really around um, something that you spoke about. I can't remember when it was, but you did a post about something that was released in the CrossFit community that was like, it's normal to experience a little bit of leakage like during high intensity kind of CrossFit workouts. And I remember you sort of really making a point of saying how problematic that that was and picking it apart as someone who regularly does CrossFit or, or, or did. I don't know. I don't know how much you still now do, but yeah, who trains in that way. 
And I kind of just wanted us to have a bit of a conversation about that because I do think that it's almost a wider issue that um, we normalize, particularly in women, like a little bit of low level leakage during some forms of training, running being one of them, you know, uh, high intensity movements such as box jumps or, um, you know, CrossFit or kind of heavy weightlifting, you know, um, scenarios. And I just wanted you to kind of, I guess, to, to round out this this um part of the podcast just your take on 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 leakage being normalized within an exercise environment and how you feel about that yeah I feel really strongly about that that actually like it's very common so you look at the stats and it's something like there was a study done specifically on CrossFit not that long ago looking at stress incontinence um and actually it found that up to 85 percent of those who do CrossFit have urinary leaks um so and they also looked at other exercise types and it was still like about 50% in terms of prevalence. So if you have Emily, like when you're exercising, you are 100% not alone. Like it is so, so common, but actually it is still never normal. So, and there's also information out there that basically says if we leak during exercise, we are nine times more likely to leak later in life. So that pretty much tells us that Unfortunately, it often doesn't go away. And actually, unfortunately, it often will just get worse if it's kind of just left. Um, or you start avoiding exercise, and that is even more detrimental for our kind of future self. Um, so I would say, like, it is never, ever, ever too early. And actually, if you look at the new NICE guidelines that are out, so NICE is the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, but they recently enough released um, a new guidance about pelvic floor, and they said that people from age 12 should be doing pelvic floor squeezes in terms of preventing because they are just they've been proven to be so effective at yes treating incontinence and products but also preventing these problems happening in the first place um so yeah i would say like leaking exercise is so incredibly common but it's never normal and actually it can like always be improved so actually doing pelvic floor muscle training alone cures like completely cures 70 percent of all incontinence and if it doesn't cure it it at least improves it significantly um and there are some other things that we can do as well like if it's not fully gone just with the squeezes um but yeah i would say you never have to put up with it i would often see that people that do have that experience actually just aren't quite sure what to do um so i'd say like if it does happen then i would say the most important thing is to breathe in your diaphragm, let your abs go, let your pelvic floor go, and do your pelvic floor squeezes. Um, and obviously get to a physio if you want to have a pelvic floor check, like we can help so much. Um, but those things I just mentioned, you can start for free immediately, kind of straight away, you know, like they're kind of accessible to, to everyone. Brilliant. Yeah, that was such good advice. Thanks, Helen. So moving on, like I I have had a noticeable, and it's why it's really, you know, brilliant that you're coming on the podcast at the time that you are, because I'm going to be honest, in the last probably like two to three months, I've had a number of messages from women who are experiencing prolapse issues. And it hasn't been an area that I've ever delved into before. And I know that when you and I worked together, I don't think we saw anyone that had a a prolapse. So it was something that I was almost just completely um, in the dark about. And I feel like the whole conversation that we've just had, as much as it's still quite taboo, is becoming more normalized. But when we think about things like prolapse, um, particularly, you know, on the more severe end, it's still so taboo and very, you know, from the women that I've 
interacted with on online just very difficult for them to navigate as a journey and I wondered if we could kind of go into that subject so first of all understanding what a prolapse is um, I think that would be a really good place for us to start. Yeah a prolapse is also very common but as you say like it's definitely not spoken about as much and when you look at the literature and the research it is extremely dominant in urinary incontinence so you know there's little bits coming out about prolapse and even small bits coming out about anal incontinence, which is also massive in terms of prevalence. But yeah, with prolapse, essentially, all it is, is when one of the pelvic organs, so the bladder, the uterus or the bowels, is sitting a bit lower than normal, or for longer than normal. So it's completely normal for all of our organs to move. So all of the organs in the body move up and down, like they need that for their function. If an organ becomes kind of stuck due to like scar tissue or adhesions or inflammation and things like that, then that organ becomes very unhappy. So movement of organs is good. It's just a prolapse is when the one of the pelvic organs is sitting lower than normal or it's sitting lower than it does do in terms of like longer for normal. Um, so it's very typical with a prolapse to be worse when gravity is in effect. So when we're upright, um, or maybe by the end of the day, or with more, again, more high impact, weightlifting, those types of things. Um, so the exercise that we really need to be doing, especially as women, um, but also the exercise that really increases that intra-abdominal pressure and the ground reaction force, and therefore can kind of like just exacerbate those symptoms because of gravity, and it can kind of like just, um, yeah, kind of send the organ downwards. I would also just say just briefly that what we're doing outside of exercise, and it, this actually stands for incontinence as well, but also really matters. Um, so the most important thing is how we go to the toilet. Um, so like if we're straining to open our bowels at all, um, then that can accumulate into like ligament lengthening and pelvic floor muscle weakness. Um, so if we're straining to open the bowels, like that can basically enhance or worsen symptoms during exercise, whether that's incontinence or prolapse. Um, so what we do during exercise really matters, but also outside of exercise really matters too. So things like, yeah, and, and I'm just thinking about it, like things like prolonged constipation. So there's a lot of like bearing down yeah. or, um, you know, someone who finds it maybe a little bit more difficult to go to the toilet. Maybe they've not got enough fiber in their diet. I mean, there's so many reasons, but um, if you're constantly having to basically, in this basic term, push to go for a poo, basically. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is basically what you really don't want if you want to avoid any sort of pelvic health issue. Yeah, this is it. And there are lots of other risk factors, you know, things like um, if you have a chronic cough, maybe with asthma or something like that, as well, like where you are in your menstrual cycle, that can take an effect on um, our symptoms as well like our connective tissue, our hypermobility, our hormonal status in general in terms of like, are you pre-pregnancy, menopause, or like, you know, there's just like our tiredness, our, like there are so many other things that can also then affect um, our pelvic floor symptoms as well. But yeah. So going back to prolapse, so there's obviously a spectrum when it comes to how quote unquote bad your prolapse is, but does the treatment kind of stand regardless of where you are on that spectrum is it kind of the same regardless of whether yours is not so bad or, or quite severe yeah it is all very similar because they're all kind of basically unless it's very severe then you know and by that I mean if the organ is outside the body um then you're going to need surgery for that but like as long as the organ is still inside the body um then basically conservative measures work really well so even if it's kind of like a bad as you say like quote unquote 
bad or kind of not so bad, regardless of that, if the organ is still inside the body, um, then treatment pretty much focuses on two main things. So the first one is like reducing excessive pressure down. And the second arm is then increasing support upwards. Um, so just like an example from each we've already mentioned. So the decreasing pressure down is to stop pushing when we poo and then increasing support upwards would be then to, um, do our pelvic floor exercises. Um, but yeah, obviously then other things that we've already mentioned as well. So breathing with the diaphragm helps to decrease pressure, letting our abs relax is, um, letting our abs relax during exercise decreases pressure. Um, so those things are all really important. Also what we are wearing. Um, so like if you have prolapse, for example, when you're weightlifting, then you might find that like stop wearing a belt for a while, that will lessen your pressure down onto the pelvic floor and then it will lessen the prolapse symptoms. Um, and then in terms of like helping support up, yes, we can do pelvic floor squeezes and they are proven to work for prolapse as well. And the other thing is that you can get this kind of like um, support wear. So there are some companies out there that specifically make like pants and leggings and shorts specifically for those with prolapse. Um, and they basically kind of like Hoik everything up in terms of like giving the pelvic floor a bit more support um and then there's also an internal support that you can wear um, and that's called a pessary and so that most often will come from your gp or your gynecologist or maybe a nurse practitioner um, but there's also a lot more pelvic health physios also training up in pessary fitting as well now um so you might be lucky and get somebody near you who's a physio who does it as well because then it's like a one-stop shop you don't have to go to lots of different people um but basically a pessary is like an internal like it's coined a sports bra for your pelvis as in like, you know, you kind of wear it internally um, and it just helps to kind of like offload the tissues and help to relocate the prolapse. Um, so there's a few options there. And then like most things, a combination of things often works the best. So trying to do a little bit of everything, um, maybe just starting with one or two if you feel a bit like that's a lot. Um, but yeah, there's some good examples there that you can try. So so many take homes from both, you know, pelvic health perspective and and if you're suffering with something like a prolapse or incontinence is diaphragmatic breathing, learning to have a flexible pelvic floor rather than one that's super, super strong and tight, mm -hmm. um, learning to do uh, the breath work. Um, and what else have we discussed? Doing your squeezes, of course. <laughs> it seems like the squeezes are just kind of like across the board. That's like the bare minimum that we should all be doing. Like it's like... Um, they don't have a, 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 an, inst an instance where they're not going to help. This is it. And they, so it's exactly the same squeeze. So basically you tighten and lift as if you're trying to stop wind. So it's a completely internal movement. So you can't really see anything happening from the outside, but you should feel like a tightening and lift from the back passage when you're squeezing. And then the opposite should happen when you let go. And if you're trying to prevent problems, then at the moment, the accepted kind of value to do is to try and do five short squeezes and five long squeezes so holding for 10 seconds once a day. But if you are trying to treat problems like incontinence or prolapse, um, then we recommend, well, it has been recommended in the research um, that we try and do more like around 20 to 25 of each per day um ideally broken up so you're looking at maybe like eight of each three times a day um and i always say that when you are doing your squeezes so always try and do one of those diaphragmatic breaths 
in between every single rep because it just really makes sure that your pelvic floor then resets and you're starting again. And then you're kind of, it's like the safety net to make sure that you're also working the flexibility because that is as important as the strength. And does that change, that recommendation change during pregnancy? So during pregnancy, yes. So if you don't have symptoms, then you should still automatically be doing the strengthening program, if you like. Um, So like the maintenance program of five of each a day and the strengthening program is like, 20 to 25 of each per day um so even if you have no symptoms in pregnancy we the research says that you should be on the strengthening program um and that's just because they just have improved to prevent problems um because in pregnancy we are just at slightly increased risk of weakening in the pelvic floor interesting today's podcast has kind of surrounded the subject of exercise and its connection to our pelvic floor and i think that it would be really great to just understand the first instance someone's symptomatic and they're doing everything that we've t- spoken about today. So they're doing their squeezes. They are trying to go on that journey of recovery. But is there any quote unquote better forms of exercise that they should be doing that are going to be suitable for them being in a symptomatic state? That's a good question. So it's very, very, very individual. So my bias is always to keep people in exercise. So you can bet like everything that I own that like if someone comes in and has a problem with exercise I will never stop them, I will never stop them exercising um but what we might do is we might just kind of like slightly scale down where they are now compared to what their pelvic floor can manage with so what I always aim to do which obviously I'm biased but I think is the best way is that to try and get people to to basically do what they want to do so the hardest version of that until they're on the edge of getting symptoms. So like with that runner, for example, I would say to her, run as fast as you can until just before you get symptoms. So that's a bit of trial and error. And like, we don't know what that is until she actually tries it. Um, So it is trial and error. It is very individualized. Um, But I would say like really, really, really strongly, like do not stop exercising. Like do not give up weightlifting. Do not give up high impact. Um, it might just mean because of your pelvic floor and where you're at that you have to scale down slightly. So that might mean running a bit slower. It might mean like doing some like, I don't know, kind of like jumping drills instead of running for a while. Or um, it might mean you have to do power walking and a bit of interval. And so like a bit of stop, start, run, walk type program um, to kind of manage where you are. But as things improve and as things get stronger, you will get back to running or you will get back to kind of weightlifting again. Um, So it's kind of tricky to answer succinctly because like there's no no kind of like one particular one that's good or bad. It's just that the more impact, the more speed, the more weight, the more demand is put on the pelvic floor. So you can you can make the exercise harder or easier on your pelvic floor. Um, but I'm a big fan of keeping people in exercise and also keeping them doing what they enjoy. You know, like someone comes in and they're used to kind of like, I don't know, CrossFit style exercise. And I say, right, you're going to do yoga now for the next four months. And I love yoga. Don't get me wrong. It's no, um, it's no shade against yoga, but you know, I think it's so crucial to get people continuing to do what they like as well. And just on that, and I think it's a really interesting point that there will be some people who probably shy away from high impact exercise, maybe not because they're symptomatic, but just because they might think that it's, you know, not for them or whatever. But there is actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but some research to support us, particularly as women, including some level of high impact training into our routine 
to support our pelvic health. So as much as like we might see it as, oh, it's it can bring about symptoms, it can also help prevent them in the long term, right? Yeah, so that's it. So basically being inactive is a risk factor for pelvic floor problems. So it is really crucial to keep moving. Um, and like I was mentioning earlier, when we are, for example, running, um, it automatically activates the pelvic floor to a higher level than what we can do ourselves. And also the same research was carried out on jumping. And they showed that when they had jumped, the pelvic floor activated for at 400% of what they could do on their own. Um, so wow. high impact work does automatically activate the pelvic floor. So like that's, that's not a bad thing. That's going to also help to promote um, like healthy pelvic floor muscles, basically. Um, so we can't rely on that alone to increase strength in the pelvic floor. We still have to do the squeezes, unfortunately, because um, I know they can get boring. But yeah, like being active and doing that high impact stuff is also beneficial for the pelvic floor. So good to know. And it means that we can keep the box jumps in as much as I hate them. (laughs) I'm going to tell myself every time they're so good for my pelvic floor. Yeah. Uh, Helen, thank you so much. I know you need to dash off because you are a busy mum of two, but I really appreciate your time today. One of the things I love about you is you're always so um, on the forefront with new research, with new findings, especially in this area. It's always really exciting to get you on and hear what we know and um, what's emerging in terms of what's best for us and our pelvic health. So I so appreciate you coming on. I think this has been a, bit, been a really good one to kind of span that exercise and pelvic health topic and you are the perfect person for it. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, hopefully it's been helpful for those listening. Oh, thanks, Alice. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time. Insanity Group.